We all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. Pricing is one of the trickiest elements of good subscription strategy, and one that most practitioners feel unprepared to tackle. Coming up with a simple and clear pricing strategy is really complicated. That's why I invited Mark Stiving to the podcast. Mark is an educator at heart, as well as a pricing expert. And in this episode, I ask him all kinds of questions about how to determine, test, communicate, and adjust pricing. In this conversation, we talk about the difference between a will I decision and a which one decision, how to raise prices, and why so many product prices end in nine. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, Robbie. It is so good to be here. You're an expert. You're quite the expert on pricing strategy. Was that something that you wanted to be since you were a little boy? Or um, was there something that happened along the way that made you focus in on this uh, quasi-art, quasi-science of business pricing? I just want you to know I've talked to hundreds, if not thousands, of pricing people, and nobody grows up wanting to be a pricing person. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Now, it turns out I was curious about pricing as a little boy. I remember going to the grocery store with my mom and seeing prices that ended in nine, 69, 99. And I always wondered, why do companies do that? Right? We know 99 is a dollar. So what's the big deal? And then I had a chance in a doctoral program at UC Berkeley to test this. Does it really work or not? And it turns out this nine cents thing really works. Um, I was able to figure out it works because we are lazy subtractors. Huh. And I became addicted to understanding how people use prices to make decisions. And from that point, you go into, okay, great, how do companies use that information to make better decisions? So that's that's where I got this bug from. I love that you remember it from being a kid in those those 99s and the that you can synthesize your doctoral research to people are lazy subtractors. I tell you what, it took a long time to get to that point, but it is so true. And in fact, let me give you a quick uh, proof point. When you shop for gasoline, and you're comparing two gas stations prices, do you subtract the nine-tenths of a cent or do you just ignore that piece? I ignore it. As you do the pennies too, by the way. And what you really do is you just subtract from the left digit towards the right. And once you find the left digits that's different, you stop subtracting. Hmm. Interesting. And I guess the other part of it is, for me, it's relatively insignificant. And for them every penny matters. That's exactly right. You you don't make a mistake by ignoring the right-hand digits in your choice decisions. So I'm curious, you know, you said nobody wants to be a pricing expert when they're little kids, but as we grow up and we work in businesses, we realize that pricing keeps rearing its, you know, I'm going to say ugly head periodically in our work. And most of us who aren't pricing experts don't exactly know what to do with it's hard. Pricing is hard. Where should pricing belong? Because um, it often seems like it pops up as a surprise. Ah, we've got to figure out pricing or, oh, is this the right price? Where should it fit in business strategy? And what should be pricing's role relative to the rest of the business? 
So first off, pricing should be really, really early in your business strategy. If you're going to create a new product, why would you create a product that people aren't willing to pay for? And so you should know how much they're willing to pay for that before you spend the resources to go create the product. Uh, part of pricing is how is it that we're going to charge for something? What's our pricing metric going to be? That's part of our business strategy. What are we going to charge for? Uh, there's a, a great saying that's how you charge is more important than how much you charge. And so think about what Netflix did to Blockbuster. They just changed the way they charge for renting movies. Yeah. Back when we had DVDs and we mailed them. So how you charge is more important than how much you charge. I want to take this apart a little bit because I think it's important. So you're saying you should know your pricing very early in the process. So I say I want to create a new kind of mug that keeps your coffee hot. Before I start manufacturing prototypes, I should go out and do market research, either have a, have a qualitative discussion with potential buyers and ask them about their coffee drinking habits and how hot they like their coffee and how much of a problem that is. And then what would you pay for it before I start designing? Is that kind of what you're talking about? That would absolutely be my advice if you didn't want to waste a whole bunch of money developing products that people don't care about. Now, you've probably heard the statistic that 90% of products fail. And it's because we go out and we build products because we think they'd be really cool or it solves a problem for me or I think I really like it. But in truth, we never talk to our marketplace to understand, is this a problem you have and would you actually pay money to solve this problem? And when we can do that first, then we build products that have a much greater chance of success. And by the way, there's one more really important part of this market research part. And that is some people love your idea. Some people hate your idea and think it's ridiculous. And what you're looking for are what are the type of people that love this? What are the type of people that really have this problem? And this is what we call market segmentation. And you can do your market segmentation before you ever build your product and know who you're building that product for. So do these things early. And actually, the product building is the last thing you do. In many companies I've seen, they build the product and then hand it to the marketing team and say, now segment the market and figure out who wants this and come up with a price. Yes. So it isn't many companies. It's most companies. <laughs> <laughs> So take a step back for a second. I used to teach product management and product management is all about how do we decide what products we're going to build next? How do we decide what features we're going to build next? And that is a really, really hard thing for companies and people to do. And until you start to step back and say, okay, now what I really want to focus on is what's my customer willing to pay? How much value is my customer getting from this product? And that should be driving the decisions we make for how do we develop products. It should be driving our decisions for how do we market our products, by the way. It should be driving our decisions for how do we sell our products. Uh, and so once we understand how customers truly value our products, it changes the way we run our entire business. Now, you have a new book coming out, Power of Value, and a new book, Selling Value. So value is a really important concept in the way you think about pricing. Can you talk about What's important about value for, for us to understand? And I also would love to tie it back to your earlier point about how you price is more important than what the price is. Sure. But let's start with the value. And, and there's, oh my gosh, I could talk for a day about value, but we won't. We'll try to make it really fast. First thing I want to talk about is, is what's called value-based pricing. We hear these phrase, this phrase all the time, value-based pricing. And I'm going to give you this, the world's simplest definition. It means charge what a customer is willing to pay. Hmm. 
Now, that's really hard to figure out. I'm not going to say it's easy to know what a customer is willing to pay because I can't read a customer's mind. But when I take that as an attitude or as a goal, I'm now no longer doing cost plus pricing or some other type of, of less optimal pricing mechanism. So I'm actually trying to figure out how much is my market willing to pay. So how much is my market willing to pay? It depends on how much value they get from my product. So now let's talk about what value actually means. Value could mean willingness to pay. So how much do you value something? Well, I value it based on how much money I would give you to, in exchange for that. But there's two other definitions of value that I use a lot that are very helpful in pricing. One is what I'll call inherent value. Inherent value is what's the value of solving the problem? Now, my favorite example of this is air. How much value do you get out of having air to breathe? I would say it's way up there. It's right up there with water. <laughs> yes, it's yeah. way up there. Maybe <laughs> even above water if you want to know the truth. But okay, I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay, so this is inherent value. You get a ton of value out of having air to breathe. The other type of value is called relative value. And so relative value is what's the value of one alternative versus the other alternatives. So I just captured some fresh Reno air. How much would you pay me for it? Nothing. Nothing. I like my California air. Good. So you have all the <laughs> air around you that you want for free, right? So air is either worth everything to you or nothing to you, depending on if we're talking about inherent value or relative value. Okay. This is, for me, this is yep. really valuable because I've thought about this a lot and sort of, I love the way you frame this as something can be really valuable, but you're not willing to pay for it. So go on. But wow, that's an aha for me. You're spot on. And so the way we think about this is we build products to solve problems for customers. And I could solve a really valuable problem for a customer. But if I have a competitor who solves that exact same problem at a really low price, I can't get a customer to pay me a ton of money because they have alternatives that are much lower priced. And so when I'm thinking about pricing a product, the very first thing I ever think about is, do I have a competitor? And if so, who is that competitor, right? What's, what's going on inside my buyer's mind as they decide, am I going to buy your product or am I going to buy someone else's product? I call these the will I and the which one decisions. Will I is, am I going to buy something in this product category? Am I going to breathe air? Am I going to go to the movies? Am I going to buy a new car? And then we have the which one, which one is, which one am I going to buy? So am I going to breathe Reno air or California air, right? Am, um, am I going to buy a Ford or Toyota or a Lexus or Mercedes? So we're making a which one decision. When people are making the will I decision, they're not price sensitive. I love When okay. people are making the which one decision, they become very price sensitive. So if there's no other choice, your pricing has a lot more flexibility. But the minute that you start to have competition, your price needs to get more and more specific and precise. Yes, we can say it that way. I would say that the buyers are more price sensitive. But let me, let me toss this into subscription world for a second, if I may, because I love this. Right? So now imagine I'm trying to win a new customer. By the way, my second book was called Win, Keep, Grow. I love that because I, can't, I didn't come out of the subscription world. I came out of the transaction world. 
And when I first started studying subscriptions, the idea that you have to win customers and keep customers and grow customers was so unique to me that that's the main framework I think about when I think about subscriptions is winning, keeping, and growing customers. So now let's talk about pricing. I want to go win a new customer. How do I win this customer? Well, I've got to say you like my product better than my competitor's product. So you're making a which one decision. I need to be priced competitively. But then you choose me. And you're now in my world. And I want to upgrade you from my good package to my better package. Guess what? You are only making a will I decision. You are not thinking to yourself, oh, I could upgrade to your better package, or I could switch to this other competitor. Because switching costs are almost always too high. It's painful. I have to go do the evaluation again. So we've now moved people from that which one decision back into the will I decision and price becomes less, much less important, much, they're much less price sensitive. And what we're doing now is we're not selling the value of my product relative to my competitor's product. We're now selling the value of solving the problem. What's the problem that we solve with this upgrade? Oh, how valuable is solving that problem? That's really interesting. This will I versus which one and where it is in the, the win keep grow continuum is really important and, and good frameworks i think for a lot of um, a lot of our listeners who are thinking about subscription product offering and how to price both the core offering and then higher or lower tiers of pricing and or any add-ons that they have i appreciate you bringing us into subscriptions and i want to ask when you think about all the different hows for pricing which which i want to get your thoughts on when does subscription pricing make sense mm-hmm when you're considering how should I price? So the hardest time I have answering this question is defining what a subscription price is, right? If you want to define a subscription as I pay the same monthly price every month or the same price every year, then I could take that as a subscription price and say, okay, we can figure that out. But what we often are doing is we're charging based on usage. You've seen a lot of subscription companies nowadays say, hey, we want to go do usage pricing. So is usage pricing still subscription? Is it a layer on top of subscription? It depends on how you want to define the word subscription. The way I think about it is I always want to charge based on how my customers are getting value from my products. And so if I've got customers, let's talk about Netflix because everybody knows Netflix. Mm -hmm. Right? And, and by the way, it's hard to say Netflix is doing it wrong, although I'm going to say they're doing it wrong, but I'm probably not right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but if we were doing usage pricing, what Netflix might do is they might say, oh, you watch 10 movies a week, you have this price. These guys only watch three movies a week, they get this price. And so that's really based on usage. And you can imagine that usage has to do with how much value is somebody getting from my product. Um, If we switch that into a B2B world and we think about someone like HubSpot, HubSpot could charge based on the number of people on your email list in your CRM. So the more people you have in your CRM, the more value you get because you're sending out more marketing messages to more people and and you're managing more. And so that's a usage-based pricing. So are you saying that you believe that Netflix would do better to price on usage because it's more aligned with how consumers see the value? rather than pricing the way that they have priced, which is now for most people who use streaming, it's unlimited access to all of their content. 
it is very hard for me to say that Netflix is not doing it right because <laughs> they make way more money than I do. But <laughs> if I were to craft a new pricing strategy for Netflix, I would probably craft something like, uh, by the way, when we use usage data, because we know how much, if we have a solution that's in the cloud, we can see how, many, how much people are using our product. This gives us great information to know who's getting the most value from our products. And so I would be watching usage and saying, what are my top 20% or top 25% customers using? And if I were to pick that price, that number of movies or number of minutes per month they're watching and put a price, a relatively high price to say, hey, you can watch up to 100 hours a month uh, at this price point. And then above that, it would be this next price point. They would get subscribers to subscribe to the highest level because they want to watch Netflix all the time. Right. I guess the things that are coming up for me when I'm when I'm listening and thinking about this, because these are the real issues that people think about, especially when they're launching a subscription or some kind of a recurring revenue option is, is it more fair to charge the people who use whatever it is the most, the most, the most content, the most features, the most support time, charge them more than people who use less? Or is there some kind of a built-in benefit to having unlimited access in exchange for a regular fee? So when I go on vacation to an all-you-can-eat place, I'm not a big drinker. I know intellectually I'm not getting the best value. There's some guy in the pool that has not stopped with the margaritas since 9 a.m. He's getting a lot more value. Theoretically, he should be charged more. But the value that I get is in not having to keep track, not having a meter running. So how do you, I mean, when you think about this, this Netflix example and trying to guess why they don't charge on usage, that would be a hypothesis that there is something relaxing or comforting about fixed price. You know, their very first, I don't know if you remember this, but one of their very, very first campaigns was no late fees. In other words, don't worry about pricing. You will have pricing security. And people I think are willing to pay, or some people are willing to pay more for pricing security or ease of understanding what the pricing is going to be, even if they're paying a premium for that privilege. Okay. You just said that. I could give you an unlimited plan at a higher price and you would pay that because it makes you more comfortable. Let me rephrase what I said, and maybe I'll make this simpler. Let's assume that Netflix is charging 20 bucks a month right now. And I say, Netflix, why don't you create a $10 a month plan which limits people to 50 hours of movies a month. Right. This is a question. This is something that I think people people worry about or, or wonder about. Will they do better if they have a 50 hours a month plan or unlimited family? You know, now they've just cracked down on shared passwords, unlimited access, but limited hours. Would there be a group of people that would want it? And 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 my guess is there is a group of people that would move to that, but I don't know if the net, if the total revenue or the total number of subscribers would go up or down as a result of doing it. And I don't know whether the happiness, the, the net promoter score, the satisfaction, the loyalty would go up or down as, as a result of that. So I'm sort of struggling, you know, and, and Netflix also, you know, recently introduced ad supported pricing tiers, which they swore up and down they would never do. And I think they've just maxed out on the number of people that, that are like me that like the security of having a fixed price and are willing to take some disruption in ads in order to get a better price. So if I were advising Netflix, and, and now that when you were talking, I had a chance to think really hard about how I would do this, here's what I would do. I would say to Netflix, take your top 20% users 
and figure out what the number of hours is they're using. And you're going to make that cap and tell everybody else, hey, look, you use way less than 100 hours a month. So although we put a cap on you, it doesn't affect you. And we take the 20% who are watching over 100 hours a month, and we raise their price to $30 instead of $20. Now, here's what's great about what I just did. That top 20% of users are really heavy users. They love Netflix. They watch Netflix a lot. The heavier the user, the more value they get from our product, the less likely they are to churn if we raise their prices. And so it is very likely that they make a lot more money if they raise prices on a few of, the, of, a, of a subsegment of their really high user customers. Um, now, yes. are they going to do that? I don't know. But, but it, it feels to me like they could easily get away with that. Now, now, we shouldn't worry about Netflix pricing. We should worry about everybody else's pricing. But take that lesson and say, you've got people who are using a ton of your product. They get a ton of value from your product. You should be able to raise their price, somehow raise their price. So let's let's keep going with this. So you have now a, a top tier. The top users are paying a higher price. Medium people are paying a medium price. There's an ad supported tier at a lower price. How many tiers is is too many? And is there a trade off? I believe that the more tiers you add, especially when it's when there's no um, salesperson as inter- intermediary, the more confusing it is for somebody. The less likely they are to buy, or the the more likely they are to keep revisiting their decision and make sure they're in the right tier. How do you think about the number of tiers or the number of options you offer a subscriber? Um, so good, better, best is popular for a reason. Three yeah. tiers is really a good answer for how many tiers you want. The saying that I use all the time, which is very similar to what you just said, is confused buyers don't buy. Another great and, line. Confused buyers don't buy. And yep. so we want to make sure that our pricing, our packaging is very simple for buyers to understand. And my favorite by far is good, better, best. Now, if you want to add options on top of that, so so we complicate it as soon as we go beyond three and we start to add options. If you were going to add an option, here's what I would require. And that is make sure that it's A, expensive, because you don't want to manage a whole bunch of inexpensive SKUs. Um, you don't want to nickel and dime your customers to yeah. death. I love that. I've never heard somebody say, if you're going to add an option, make sure it's expensive. But But you're right, because... People often add these things like, you know, I told you before we started recording a a client that has a $25 option on a $4,000 product. Yeah. I'm like, why bother? Why not just give it away? Right. Or raise the price a lot, but, but go on. Yeah. I love that. No, you're spot on. And then the other thing you want for your option is you want it to be something that people in your good category would want. Some people in your good category would want, some people in your better category would want, and some people in your best category would want. If it's obvious that only people in the best category want it, we just put it as a feature in the best and we don't make it an option. It doesn't make sense to make that's it an option. That's another great rule. These are uh, There's a lot of little nuggets here, but, but that's very actionable, right? You have your three tiers. You're thinking, I have a new feature. Do I put it into one of my buckets or do I make it a separate feature? You're saying if there are some people in each category that would want it, then it gets its own price. If it's only for one, then dump it in there. Exactly. You you don't want very many options. You want very few options to keep the decision simple. Um, Here's a great example of an option that works well, by the way, is if you are doing TurboTax for your taxes, there's a California state version of TurboTax as an option. 
right? If you live in California, you're going to buy that as an option. And I live in Nevada, I'm not going to buy it. And it doesn't matter if we both use the least expensive version of TurboTax or not. I don't want it. You do want it. It makes perfect sense. What about the price of free? When does free work? When doesn't it work? What's your point of view on the role of free in pricing? So free is amazing for products that have no marginal cost. So that means it's almost digital. It's always digital type products or data. And it works best by far if you have a network effect in your business. So a network effect is where the more people I get to use the product, the more valuable the product becomes to all the users. Uh, so all the social media people are, are based on network effects, right? We all have LinkedIn accounts because everybody else has a LinkedIn account. And what we want to do with, with free is to say, how do I get more and more users on my platform as quickly as possible? Totally okay with that in terms of a free uh, strategy. But we have to think of free, it's, it's much more of a customer acquisition strategy than it is a pricing strategy. Because what we're really doing is we're giving product away to build a pool of people that we can now go fishing in. And the whole point of free is to have this group of people that I can eventually sell, upsell to them and get them to pay me money for something, whatever that happens to be. What about free trial? So free trial is interesting. Here's a big difference between free and free trial. For free, I might... Um, I, I used to use a, I still do. I use a package called Toodle Do. It's my, it's what I do for my tasks, right? How I manage my daily to dos. And it was free and I used it for free. And I got to the point where I was using enough of it that I just subscribed because I wanted to pay the money. Uh, I think there might have been some features that I cared about, but I really wanted to make sure I was, I was paying them for it. But I would never have tried it if it was a free trial and I knew I was going to have to pay for it a month from now or two months from now. It was, I'm just using this because I can now use it. And as I grew my capability, I grew my willingness to pay and ability to pay. So this is a double-edged sword for a lot of subscription companies who introduce a free offering and they introduce it for free because they, they want to show people, like, you don't think you're going to make a habit of it, but we know you are going to make a habit. Therefore, it's freemium. In some cases, it's just free forever and they don't have a premium product yet. And then you have these customers. So I, I had this issue with Zoomerang, which was my second subscription company many years ago, became part of SurveyMonkey. All these people saying, including people at Procter & Gamble saying, well, I'm using the free version, but it's all I need. I love the company, but it's all I need. I don't need any more features. And then you have people, like some people are very nice and say, you know, I just want to pay you because I don't want you to go out of business and I really value what you're doing. But But most people don't. Most people just accept that there's some logic in the world that this app is free or my music is meant to be free or my dating app is meant to be free. If you realize you got yourself into that jam, like Toodledoo did, what do you do to get out of it? So this is the packaging question, which is a really hard question. What features am I going to put in my good, my better, my best? And what we want to think about, especially for a free package, is what's the minimum viable product that I could possibly have? And then what's the value that most people truly get from my product? It, let's say that I gave my product away for free to everybody for a year, just because I want to watch usage. I want to see what, pe mm -hmm. what features people use. And what I could do then is I could go through and say, look, everybody uses these four features. So these four features are going in free. 
and 50% of my users are using this set of features. So I'm going to take them and put them in my paid tier. And from now on, anybody who wants to use this set of features is going to pay me some amount of money. And by the way, 25% of people are using this set of features. So I'm going to put them in my best tier. And if you want those, you're going to pay me a lot of money. By watching the usage from our current customer base, it gives us great insight into which customers are valuing which features. Is it tough to put features behind a paywall? To price or not to price, that is the question. How do you know when it's time to put the product? Like I, I agree with you that a lot of companies offer the whole thing for free up front. Their MVP, the first product that they come out with that they think is really viable, that, that solves the problem completely, um, even if it's not as elegant as what they're envisioning for the future. Um, lots of people sign up, they see they're giving lots of value, but they're also educating people that this product is meant to be free. So how do you, if you have to raise a price or add a price, how do you do that? So let's talk about two different things. First off, if I've got a, a whole bunch of very free customers, that may be very valuable because I've built a brand, I've built a reputation, I've built a great product, and now I can start charging for new customers to come in. So the first thing about raising prices, and by the way, this doesn't matter if it's free or we're just talking about um, raising prices on normal uh, subscription products, your new customers don't know your old price. Okay. Just raise your price, right? Doesn't matter. So on one day you say, anybody who's in before today gets our old price and going forward, you get our new price. If you leave, if you're a subscriber and you cancel, when you come back, you're in our new bucket. But as long as you stay loyal, we're going to keep you where you are. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Uh, okay. okay. So I didn't actually say that, but everything you said is consistent with what I did. Okay. Say. okay? <laughs> right on. Okay. So, Fair enough. Because so, I'm going to modify what you just said for, for my step two. My step two, and that is one of the most amazing things about subscriptions is in order for me to win a new customer, I have to convince them of the value of my product. So let's call this perceived value. You don't know if it's true or not. You actually don't know how much value you're gonna get from a product until you've started using it. So now I've convinced you to use my free product. I've convinced you to buy my good package, whatever it is I've convinced you of, you're using my product. You now know there's real value in this product. You've put time into learning it and building your own processes around it, right? If Tootle do doubled or tripled their price, I would still pay it. It would tick me off, I would still pay it, right? Because I've built my world and the way I manage my day around their products. Now, what that says is that we can now go raise prices on our current customers because they now know the real value and odds are good their real value is much, much higher than the price we're actually charging them. Now, I'm not saying that it's comfortable to do that. I'm not saying they're going to like you when you do that. I'm saying you can do that and most of them will stay. Right. So then you could raise the price for everybody, new subscribers and existing subscribers, maybe at the same time. Is that what you're, you're saying? So you have a year, you see that what happens is people who use it for free, make it a habit, commit. They're not going to go anywhere. They're getting great value. Therefore, at the end of that first year, you say, well, I could charge new customers, new subscribers, and I could probably actually charge my existing subscribers because they're the ones that actually understand the value. Yep, absolutely right. However, can we talk about raising prices to existing customers yeah, for a little while? Please. Would you mind? Next question. Yeah. <laughs> um, so step one, if I were raising prices on existing customers in a subscription business, 
I would look at usage. So we're going to look at that usage data one more time. And the ones who are using my product the most get the most value from my product. I would raise their price first. And odds are good, nobody's going to churn. And then as we start going down that usage level, we're going to get to the, you know, the, the median point. And we might start finding a few people who would churn when we raise their prices. And as we get to the low usage, people would start to churn. People will churn. So my advice is find that price point, find that, that, that level inside the amount of usage your customers are using to where the amount of churn is costing me more than the increase in profit from the price increase and stop raising the price below that level. Now, let me give you a great example of that. Imagine that you belong to a gym. Uh, you pay your 20 bucks a month or whatever the heck it is. You never, ever go, but you just pay your 20 bucks a month. And one day the gym calls you and says, hey, uh, we're raising rates. It's not going to be $25. They're the most likely to cancel. Yeah, you're most likely to cancel. You're like, I'm out. But if you go every day, you pay your 20 bucks, and then they say it's going up to 25, you're like, okay, I don't like it, but I go every day. It's my life. Great, great example. So if we're going to raise prices on current customers, I want to give you the formula for how to do this. So this is the communication that you're going to send out to your customers. Uh, so the first thing you're going to say is uh, my cost went up. Yep. Now, costs don't drive pricing, but customers don't want to hear you want to make more money. So you just say my costs went up, uh, whatever cost they did. Uh, if it's true, you could say we haven't raised prices in three years, 10 years, 40 years, whatever the number is. Um, number three, we've added more value to our product recently. And then number four, say or do something nice for them. So a couple examples of those, of those are, uh, one, you could say, oh, you've been a loyal customer of ours, so we're going to, although we raise prices today, we're going to hold off your price increase for six months, mm -hmm. and then we'll bring your price up. Or another one might be, if we're, if we're in that free level and we decide we're going to raise, we're going to start charging, and we say we're going to charge $20 a month, we could send out an email that says, hey, we're charging everybody $20 a month, uh, but because you were one of our, our beta customers up front, your rate's only going to be $10 a month. And so what we've done is we made them feel good that we're doing something for them while we're raising their price. I love that. That's very specific. And I think a lot of people struggle with how to raise their prices and how to talk about it and whether to talk about it at all or just hope that nobody notices, although the FTC is not letting people do that anymore. I have, I have a question on a very different topic that I, I wanted to make sure we got to, because I know that some of the people that are listening come from the B2B world. And I'm wondering... If, if you're somebody who's been pricing for consumer and now you're pricing for B2B, what additional considerations do you need to take into account? Let's differentiate B2C and B2B in the following way, if that's okay. Um, I'm going to say B2C, we get tons and tons of data. We set a price. It's on our webpage. People choose to buy from us or not. And I call that Teoli pricing, which is take it or leave it pricing. Mm -hmm. I'm not negotiating with individual customers about prices. This is just the price. In the world of B2B, if you are selling to small and mid-sized businesses in that same Teoli type market where I've got a web page and I've got a set of prices, you can do it exactly the same way. Right? We're trying to figure out how much is somebody willing to pay, 
Um, one advantage we have in B2B is we could actually theoretically estimate how much profit my customers will make when they use my product, where in B2C, we don't have that. But if I'm selling with a single price on a single web page or three prices on a single web page, then the pricing is mostly the same. The huge difference in B2B is most of your revenue or half of your revenue is probably coming from negotiated deals. It's probably coming from a direct salesperson out dealing with enterprise type customers, and you're trying to sell huge uh, opportunities. I think of these as custom one-off pricing. You probably want to use all the strategies we thought of in terms of what am I going to use for pricing metric and how am I going to do my packaging? But when it comes time to deal with any given customer, you're negotiating with that customer about what it is you're going to do for that customer. Um, and so the price could be different. The pricing metric could be different. You do want to be really careful that your internal systems can handle whatever it is you choose to do. So oftentimes we choose pricing metrics that we're already using in our take it or leave it world, but we're negotiating different rates, different prices. Uh, the one other thing I would strongly recommend everybody who's in a cloud-based SaaS product do, never customize your solution. Oh my gosh. Uh, keep it standard, keep it cloud. And if they need customization, make it configurable, yes. not customized. Because otherwise your your management of your, of your uh, technology becomes ridiculous. Right. And you lose a lot of the benefits of the subscription models. Subscription pricing and subscription models are in part, I think, successful because of their clarity, consistency, tracking ability. And when you have customized offerings, then you also have customized pricing and you have to keep track of both. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a great point. And, and I know that you're going to upgrade my software next month and it'll work because it's everybody else's and you've tested it. But when I have customized software, now you've got to test mine as well as everybody else's. And it's just, it's a pain. I'm going to wrap it up. Lots of more things we could have talked about, but that'll have to wait for another day. Do you have a minute or two for a speed round? I hope so. We'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. First subscription you ever had? Probably a gym membership. Your favorite subscription today? Toodle do. <laughs> <laughs> An effective pricing strategy that delights you? Uh, I rave about LinkedIn's pricing all the time. Why do people end prices with 99 cents and how well does that work? Because we are lazy subtractors. It is probably the least important thing you want to care about if you're worried about your pricing, although it's a decision you have to make. Uh, a really great rule of thumb is if your price ends in nine, people tend to think of it as a good deal. And if your price ends in zero, people tend to think of it as high quality. So do you want to be known as low price or high quality? And if you care, all of my prices end in zeros. <laughs> awesome. And last question. Uh, which of your books is best for subscription pros? Um, am I allowed to say all three? Sure. <laughs> no, to be, so to be fair, Win, Keep, Grow was actually written for subscriptions. But I would say a lot of people who are born in the cloud know a lot of what's in, in Win, Keep, Grow, but they've never thought about it. And, and so it was, a, it was a person's observations coming not from the subscription world about what subscriptions are really like. Mark, um, thank you so much for being on Subscription Stories. I hope you'll come back again soon. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thank you, Robbie. This was a lot of fun. 
That was Mark Stiving, author of Impact Pricing, Win, Keep, Grow, and Selling Value. For more about Mark, his books, and his work, go to impactpricing.com. And for more about subscription stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Mark, go to robbiekelmanbaxter.com slash podcast. Also, I have a favor to ask. If you like what you heard, please take a minute to go over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes and leave a review. Mention Mark in this episode if you especially enjoyed it. Reviews are how listeners find our podcast, and we appreciate each one. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories. Subscription Stories.